Father, may we truly surrender all to you because you are our all in all. And Lord, we ask even now that you would have your way with us and speak to us and conform us to the image of your son by your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone on the live stream. I have to remember to still look at the camera because now we have folks here in person. I'm kind of going back and, back and forth. But welcome to all of you. I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them if you have those with you. It's not a time to play games on your device, even if I am boring. Um, but we are continuing our study from the Old Testament book of Jonah today, this four-part series. We took a break last week, um, but looking today at the third chapter of the book of Jonah. If you will remember two weeks ago in Jonah chapter 2, Scripture recounted his experience while inside the great fish. Jonah, a genuine believer in the one true God and the God of Scripture, but a believer who, as we saw, was clearly, clearly running from God's will. Chapter 2 concludes with this beautiful imagery of Jonah being vomited up onto the shore on dry ground. Chapter 3 shifts away from a focus on Jonah to the focus being primarily on the people of Nineveh again. And as we look at the third chapter of the book of Jonah today together in some detail, there is so much that we can learn, that we can learn from the result of Jonah finally obeying God, that we can learn about genuine heartfelt repentance, as you see in the response of the people of Nineveh at this time. And there's so much we can learn about God's mercy. So my three points today are very simple. And they're based upon God's merciful response in this account. The first is this. Jonah obeyed in verses 1 through 4. Nineveh repented, verses 5 through 9. And God forgave, verse 10. So chapter 3 of Jonah begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah a second time, once again. And the word of the Lord is, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's the same basic command that God gave Jonah in chapter 1. Go to Nineveh. It's almost as if God were saying, okay, Jonah, you've tried to run. You've survived a horrendous storm at sea. You've spent three days under the sea in the belly of a fish. Are you ready to try this again from the beginning? And Jonah is now ready to try doing things God's way. Jonah, Jonah is finally to the point of going to Nineveh. But there are still potential questions that remain unanswered. Jonah doesn't know what he's going to say. All Jonah knows is that God has said that he is to proclaim the message that God will give him. Jonah doesn't know how the Ninevites will respond, if they respond at all. But the fact is that really doesn't matter. That shouldn't concern Jonah. He knows what he has been commanded to do, and he needs to do it. To just do it, if you will, 
leaving the outcome and the results in the hands of God. And I think there is an incredibly important lesson for you and me here. Because Jonah here knows that the will of God is to go to Nineveh. And Jonah had been running from obeying the will of God that he knew. But the lesson here I think for you and me is this. If we aren't acting, if we aren't responding in accordance to what we know is clearly God's will, things that God's word clearly and explicitly directs us, don't think that God is going to reveal any more of his will to us until we already act by his grace and the power of the spirit working in us to that which we already know. If we're doing something or continuing in a pattern of behavior that is overtly sinful and clearly contrary to God's word, don't expect God to show you or me anything else about his will because we're not acting upon the will of God that we already know. When God gives us, just like he gave Jonah, a command or a clear directive, when God's word gives us a clear directive, we simply need to obey. Just do it. Do it without knowing every detail, without knowing the outcome. Our obedience to God's commands can never be conditioned or contingent upon whether or not we know the final outcome. We, like Jonah, need to simply obey. Knowing that as God's children, as God's people, we are in his care. The care of the one who is faithful and true. The care of the one who is unchanging. In the care of God, who does all things, even in difficult circumstances, who does all things well. I know I tell missionary stories fairly often, but one of my other missionary heroes is a missionary by the name of Victor Plymeyer, who was actually born in Loganville, Pennsylvania in 1881. Loganville, Pennsylvania, I think of because it was just about 45 minutes up the road from where Tim and Eliana and I used to live in Maryland, just across the line. And there was a place up there that a wonderful peach orchard that sold peach ice cream this time of year, homemade. <laughs> so that, when I hear Loganville, that's what I think of. But Victor Plymeyer went to China, specifically Tibet, in 1908. Now, if you know anything about Tibet even now, it is an incredibly remote region of the world, steeped in um, tribal religion and Buddhism and this melding and syncretism of a number of Eastern religions Lots of witchcraft. He was first with the Christian Missionary Alliance and later with the Assemblies of God for many years. But Victor Plymeyer was called to Tibet. He was there, buried his first wife and first son from disease and was in Tibet, listen to this, 16 years before he baptized his first convert. Talk about giving Satan an opportunity to mess with your head if you're not secure in what God has called you to. 16 years and burying your first wife and son. But he remained in Tibet and had eventually many years of what was visibly fruitful ministry there and remained in Tibet until 1949 when his second wife and his family, they had to leave because of the communist takeover. Um, 
But Victor Plymeyer, what is my point? Victor Plymeyer knew the will of God. And that, that obedience to what was the clear will of God for him is what held him. And so many other believers in difficult places in that place where God called them faithfully. He didn't know the outcome. He didn't know that eventually he would see great visible, tangible fruit in his ministry. But he went in obedience. The other thing which Jonah had to come to terms with is that whether he liked it or not, getting back to Jonah here in chapter 3, whether Jonah liked it or not, God was concerned about the people of Nineveh. Verses 3 and 4 tell us of Jonah's arrival in Nineveh. Specifically, verse 3 says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And that might seem like a peculiar statement because it didn't take three days to walk across the breadth of the city of Nineveh. So what does that mean? Well, in the world of Jonah's day, it was not unusual for prophets, even false ungodly ones, as we read about in the Old Testament too, pagan prophets, if you will, to visit an important city. And visiting an important city required certain types of protocols. For Jonah to be given a hearing required that he adhere to these protocols. This is typical in the ancient Near East at that time. So it's highly unlikely that Jonah, as we sometimes picture it, just showed up in Nineveh unnoticed and wandered around to various locations shouting his message. That would have been a completely foreign idea during the day in which he lived. Because Nineveh was a major city, a major diplomatic center, and that required certain protocols. So instead of wandering around the first day, he would have first had meetings with officials, maybe even formal hearings to explain his purpose in coming. The second day, he would have carried out his official reasons for the visit, proclaiming the word of the Lord, proclaiming God's message. And the third day, see, three days breath. The third day would have included follow-up meetings according to the protocols that were in place in that day before he left the city. That would have been the normal procedure. But things quickly departed from accepted protocol because we see in verse 4 and following, as soon as Jonah, even in those sorts of meetings that would have taken place, began proclaiming the message God gave him, the people of Nineveh responded. Nineveh repented. Jonah was really just getting warmed up when, as we read in verse 5, the Ninevites began responding en masse. Their response was widespread. And verse 5 says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Nothing more is mentioned about the three days. Jonah's words fell upon receptive hearts and ears even on day one. And there was an immediate change. They believed God. Picture Jonah. Put yourself in Jonah's shoes with the attitude that Jonah had. Jonah was probably shocked. He couldn't believe what he was seeing and he didn't like it either. In light of Jonah's wrong attitude toward the Ninevites, quite frankly, he was probably looking forward in some way to day number 40 when they would get what he thought they had coming to them. But they believed God. And as I talked about in the first sermon from this series, again, the resounding important lesson here for you and me, don't write people off. Don't write 
anyone off. Don't think that you or I can ever fully know or think or understand who will actually come to Christ because as has been the experience a number of times in my life and I'm sure with many of you as well, the person that I thought was right on the cusp of making a true profession of faith in Christ never takes that step. And the person that in my mind was so far from the Lord there wasn't even a possibility, all of a sudden God had been working inside of that person and, and wow, they, they, they come to Christ. Sometimes we will be utterly shocked by who does and who does not respond to the gospel. As I've said, I've been guilty of this. I suspect many of you have too. We don't always see or discern what God is doing, what is happening in the spiritual realm, how God is working in someone's heart. Don't ever write someone off. You or I just might be surprised or even shocked. Do you think the Christians in the first century ever really thought that Saul, the Pharisee, was going to be converted to the faith, let alone become one of their leaders? I think Jonah chapter 3 and the heart of God also helps us to understand why Scripture is so clear that God hates sin among his people or among those who haven't placed their faith in him. First of all, God hates sin because it is contrary to his nature and his scripture is emphatically clear, no sin can dwell in his presence. But God also hates sin, not somehow because he's a hateful God, but because he's a loving God and he knows that sin separates us from him and from the relationship we were created and intended to have with him even before the fall. And when we read in verse 5 that the Ninevites believed God, this was not simply a head thing. It certainly wasn't superficial. What we see here is a response that is indicative of genuine transformation, a real inward change brought about by God in response to the truth of his word proclaimed. And what we have is a wonderful picture of salvation in the Old Testament among Gentiles. Confession and repentance and response to God sent conviction. The second part of verse five, 5 tells us they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And they continue in verses 6 through 9. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The Ninevites still had a chance and they realized it. Who knows? God may turn and relent. 
We read of this same kind of promise and possibility in Jeremiah chapter 18, beginning of the seventh verse. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. We can't miss the strong imagery in Jonah chapter 3. Everyone, everyone from the king and the nobles to the beast of burden were incorporated in this act of repentance. The king and the nobles, the powerful of this community, put on sackcloth. The king took off his royal robes and put on sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Wearing sackcloth and fasting were widely recognized as signs of repentance. Repentance. It's a word we don't like, and I know I've used this quote before, but I'm going to use it again. Um, it was Reverend Charles Crabtree, who actually went to be with the Lord last Sunday, was a leader in the Assemblies of God for many years. I heard him say in a sermon one time, and I can't say it the way he did with his preaching style, but he said this, repentance is a good word because it's a God word. But repentance, not just sorrow for getting caught, not just let me see what hoops I can jump through to somehow appease God so I can get on with my life and my agenda. That's not repentance. The story is told of a shoplifter who writes to a department store and says, I've just become a Christian and I can't sleep at night because I feel guilty. So here is the $100 I owe you. Then the shoplifter signed his name and put a PS at the bottom. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> That's not repentance. We need to learn from the example of the Ninevites. Repentance. By God's power, turning away from sin. From our wicked ways in response to God's grace. And that offer is non-negotiable. It's true in both the Old and the New Testament and throughout time and history. Repentance, hear me, repentance, turning away from sin, turning away from darkness, turning toward God. Repentance is a clear indication of whether or not true God-breathed Holy Spirit transformation is taking place in your life and mine. Acts chapter 3 reminds us, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. That's the first step. So that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10. For godly grief, hear this, for godly grief, godly sorrow as some translations say, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces sorrow, or excuse me, produces death. Let me read that again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. 
hear me. This is serious stuff for Nineveh, for God's people in every age and generation. There is no true salvation apart from repentance by God's grace and God's power. That's why we pray every Sunday. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we have everything right. We are, brothers and sisters, works in progress with God working by his grace to transform us. But if there's repentance going on, it's a continuing part of our lives. Our lives will reflect and supernaturally demonstrate the wonderful God transformation God has. And God is continuing to work in our lives by his grace and for his glory. It's really about a lifestyle of repentance as we walk in obedience to the known will of God, as we walk in obedience to the known commands of God, by his spirit, God continues to show us more and more, to conform us more into his his image and gradually, bit by bit, more fully and more fully and more fully, day by day, continue turning us more fully in a heartfelt way toward him. So that while certainly we are not perfect, Our bent more and more will not be any longer towards sin, but our bent will be toward doing the will of our Heavenly Father. Repentance is an essential and inseparable part of salvation. God calls us to a lifestyle of repentance, of continuing to turn more fully toward Him, arms open wide saying, Lord, have your will, have your way. In me, mold me and shape me more and more into the image of Jesus for the glory of your name. And as believers, when we are truly sorry for sins that we have committed, not just getting caught, not just because of the consequences, there will be genuine heartfelt repentance infused by the grace of our loving God. The Ninevites demonstrated genuine sorrow for their sin and repentance, and they cried out to God. And finally, the result, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, that's repentance. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God had great compassion and mercy on them. God did the very thing that probably short-circuited Jonah's brain. The Ninevites who had oppressed the Hebrew people, despite the sins, the egregious sins they had committed, experienced God's compassion and God's mercy. God demonstrated his gracious, long-suffering, forgiving character by forgiving them and sparing them. God is moved to compassion by genuine repentance. That's the story of Nineveh. That's the story of Jonah. And that is the story of every person down through the centuries who placed their faith in the one true God. Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through the church age. It's the story of every one of us who knows Christ. 
God doesn't rate anybody off. Neither should we. And God clearly demonstrates his mercy. He can clearly demonstrates to us in his mercy our daily continuing need for his grace and the power of his spirit so that we can live lifestyles of repentance, so that we can be the people that he is forming us into individually and all together, so that we can walk in newness of life, that we can walk in the reality of his forgiveness and that we can be the church, the people of God here in this day that he is calling us to be. But it begins with repentance. It begins by responding to what is clearly the known will of God. And as we do that by God's grace, and as we continue in a lifestyle of repentance, throwing our arms open wide to him, there is no limit to the power he will pour into us and the grace and mercy he will pour into us and through us to other people for the glory of his name. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your call to Jonah, to Nineveh. God, thank you for your call to us, which begins with repentance. So Lord, search our hearts even now, beginning with me. Lord, search our hearts. And Lord, show us those things that we need to turn from by your grace, that we need to repent of. And Lord, show us in each of our lives and together where and how we need to more fully turn to you. Lord, forgive us for when we have not responded and walked in what is your clear, express, and known will. Have mercy on us. And Lord, give us grace and the power of your spirit to obey your known will so that in ever increasing and greater measure, you can reveal the depths of your will and your heart to us in this day. And God, thank you. Thank you that you never write anyone off. Thank you, Lord, that there is no limit to the bounds of your grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that you make it possible for sinners such as us to walk in your will in an intimate relationship with you. Lord, what can we say but thank you? And your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen.